Welcome to Episode 10 of Impact Medicom's podcast series on precision medicine and oncology. In this episode, hosted by Impact Medicom's Sarah Desette, we welcome Dr. Rosalind Jurgens, Associate Professor in the Department of Oncology at McMaster University and Adjunct Assistant Professor in the Department of Oncology at the Johns Hopkins Medical Institute. Dr. Jurgens has expertise in treating lung and esophageal cancer. Some of her leadership roles include serving as the head of the Department of Clinical Trials at the Juravinsky Cancer Center and chair of the executive committee of the Canadian Cancer Trials Group Investigational New Drug Committee. In this episode, Dr. Jurgens discusses the evolving biomarker landscape in gastrointestinal malignancies and some of the advantages and challenges of implementing and accessing biomarker testing. Hope you enjoy it. Hello, listeners. Today, we are discussing predictive biomarkers in gastrointestinal malignancies. And as we have had quite a few past podcast episodes focus on colorectal cancer, we are going to focus this discussion on some other tumor sites in the GI space. So we have invited Dr. Rosalind Jurgens to the podcast today to share her insights on this topic. So Dr. Jurgens, can you start us off by telling us a bit about yourself and which GI cancers you treat in your practice? <laughs> Thanks so much. Uh, yes, uh, my name is Roz Jurgens. I'm a medical oncologist. I practice out of Hamilton, Ontario uh, at the Juravinsky Cancer Center. My areas of expertise uh, include both lung cancer and upper GI malignancy. So I treat mainly esophageal and gastric cancers. Quite interested in molecular diagnostics as well as early phase clinical trial design. Uh, so I uh, have led multiple groups, including, including our own clinical trials department at the Cancer Center and have been the uh, chair of the Investigational New Drug Committee at uh, the Cancer Canadian Cancer Trials Group. Um, and, and since you treat esophageal and gastric cancers, uh, maybe we can focus first on that area. And can you describe how the biomarker landscape has evolved over the years uh, in, in the upper GI sites and, and what is on the horizon? Absolutely. So when we look at uh, esophageal and gastric, really the first and only biomarker we had for the longest time was HER2. HER2 is an amplification that we were looking for uh, diagnosed by immunohistochemistry. It was first uh, funded for just uh, cancers that straddle the GE junction or the, or the stomach itself. Um, now we have funding for testing of esophageal cancers as well. So this is done through immunohistochemistry and then uh, depending on what the immunohistochemistry comes back as, there's confirmatory fish testing if there's a equivocal or intermediate result. And that's all we had for the longest time. We've now had sort of a, an explosion of additional tests uh, that have become uh, available. So for example, we've started testing uh, a bit more across the board in GI malignancies uh, for things like microsatellite testing. Um, we're doing those by immunohistochemistry currently, staining for the individual proteins. Um, we have a four-protein panel that's been approved in the province of Ontario that includes uh, MLH1 and MSH2 and MSH6 and then PMS2. Um, and so we're just looking to see whether or not any of those mismatch repair proteins are absent. If they are, someone would be categorized as microsatellite instable. Um, and uh, that might uh, allow those patients uh, to be considered for uh, things like immunotherapy treatment. 
And then, you know, speaking in the bends of immunotherapy, a more recent test that has become part of clinical trials that have now led to therapies uh, that are becoming available across the country is something called PDL1. PDL1 is a uh, biomarker that's been used in multiple cancers, probably most famously lung cancer, to predict which patients benefit from using an immune-based approach. This is still a work in progress. These biomarkers were part of uh, these clinical trials, but they were not exclusionary for the clinical trials. So they would report what the PDL1 test was, but all patients with all PDL1 expressions were allowed to accrue and the results have been released. So we don't yet have a great sense of we should be giving immunotherapy, for example, in combination with chemotherapy to people with a score of X versus Y versus give it to everyone. So it's a bit of a point of contention, but many of us who are treating physicians in this space really do feel that it's helpful in us counseling our patients with regard, regard to expectations for benefit because the higher your PDL1 score is, the more likely it is that you might benefit from these treatments. And they, they come at a cost, right? There are side effects to poking at someone's immune system. So you'd really like to know what the likelihood is that that person's going to benefit from that type of treatment. Now, all the things that I've mentioned so far are all immunohistochemical tests, for better or for worse. We don't have an easy way to be able to test all of them in one single test. Um, so they are all done simultaneously, but as individual tests. And, and are there other, so looking at other GI malignancies, would, which would you say have kind of the most rapidly evolving um, biomarker landscape and which ones have, you know, very little traction and really are in need of more, you know, discovery validation? If we're thinking about things that pair treatment with a test, right, you know, colorectal, it's interesting, colorectals come at things almost a little bit backwards, right? They started using KRAS as a way to exclude people from uh, a line of therapy with uh, something called EGFR monoclonal antibodies. But now we're starting to see that we might be able to take some of that KRAS mutation status and, and flip that into an efficacy perspective. So there are direct KRAS inhibitors now that are in clinical trials. One of them has been approved in lung cancer, but a fraction of colorectal, biliary, uh, pancreatic cancers will also have this particular type of KRAS. It's something called KRAS. G12C. So it, it may turn into something that can be harnessed as opposed to something that's exclusionary for therapy. We're seeing the same thing with BRAF. So there's now treatments approved in colorectal for patients who have BRAF mutations. We've got the same thing in lung cancer. Mm -hmm. I don't know that we've got a great sense for what the frequency of BRAF is across some of the other GI malignancies, but I'll bet you dimes to dollars that um, they're there just in an infrequent fashion. We've also got NTREC. So NTREC is something that can be seen in multiple malignancies, including things like pancreatic, cholangio, colon. And when uh, somebody has one, if you pair it with the right treatment, they can have extraordinarily long uh, durations of benefit from these drugs. So, you know, I, I feel like your hepatocellular carcinomas, your cholangios, uh, that, that kind of class uh, have have lagged behind in having things that we can pair a treatment with a target. Uh, colorectal is probably the leader and uh, I think esophageal gastric is coming up behind them. You, you had mentioned NTREC um, and there are kind of an, a number of uh, genomic biomarkers that may can be considered tumor agnostic, possibly BRAF too, uh, as well as like MSI, MMR and uh, tumor mutational burner. 
burden. So do any of these biomarkers play a significant role in treatment planning for GI malignancies right now? That's the hard part, right? Is if you look at the frequency of how often am I going to find any one of these given things, they're extremely low, right? So you know, less than 1% for, for NTREC across some of the different GI malignancies. Um, again, BRAF, different frequencies, even depending on if it's a right-sided or a left-sided colon cancer or things like that. So it, it's hard when it feels a little bit like you're looking for a needle in a haystack. Even KRAS, right? We see lots of KRAS. KRAS is found in upwards of 90% of pancreatic cancers, but we've only cracked the nut for one type of KRAS. <laughs> so, and that is found most frequently in lung cancer, but it can be seen in GI malignancies. And so it's it's recognizing that these uh, these targets are in existence. And part of the hard part is when you don't have a therapeutic benefit to this, even if it's one of exclusion, Many medical oncologists, myself included, forget about it, right? So I have gotten into the habit of every time I'm making a treatment decision with a patient. So if I'm changing lines of therapy, I make sure to go back to their pathology, look and see what our state of knowledge was the last time I made a treatment decision, look to see, okay, what level of testing have I done? Is there any new testing that's available so that I'm making sure that uh, additional testing is ordered. Because again, things things are changing in such an incredibly rapid pace. Do you want to make sure you've got front of mind that just because maybe I even did next generation sequencing or comprehensive panel profiling back when someone was first diagnosed, but some of these lines of therapies can last a year or more and technology can change. Um, so you want to make sure that you're always kind of keeping up to date with what possibilities exist. Um, it's where it becomes a little bit tricky about how we work on getting our, our tests. Right now, it's it's mainly tissue-based, and tissue-based evaluations can be slow. So when you're trying to make a pivot decision, my experience is, is that if I needed a new test, the moment I'm trying to make a treatment decision change, it can take me anywhere from four to six weeks to get that result back. And for many patients, they can't wait that long. So I think there's opportunities for us to look at things. Um, and I know we're going to chat later about like liquid biopsies and what does that mean and, and, and how might that play a role here? What happens uh, when we do molecular tests? You know, when, should we be using these big panels versus the single one-off tests if there's only one test for your disease in that moment? What information might be hidden in the woodwork that you don't realize is there that you might be able to get a hold of so that you don't have to retest. You can just go back and re reevaluate uh, the information that we already had. So it's it's interesting as to, to where we're at with this space because uh, technology is moving so incredibly mm -hmm. quickly. Yeah. And I, I know you mentioned for esophageal and gastro, gastric cancers, you're mainly using, you're doing IHC tests there. And those are the single gene assays. Correct. Um, and it may be different for other GI sites, but are there particular scenarios where really multiplex testing using NGS is warranted? Great question. You know, right now in, um, in esophageal, in gastric, outside of the rare circumstance where I've got someone who honestly can afford the testing, will I send it off for next generation sequencing? There just isn't a, a great enough body of evidence that I'm going to find something um, for me to recommend it across the board. As the rest of oncology evolves around us, that may change, right? Because what people don't necessarily realize is, you know, when we do a, a next generation sequencing panel or a comprehensive genomic profiling panel, 
um, not all panels are created equal. Uh, most of the panels that were launched here in Canada um, in the last five years were, were the panels that were available and they were DNA-based panels. So DNA-based panels are, are useful in finding genetic aberrations like um, the insertions and deletions or the, the point mutations. So mutations, uh, classic mutations that are abnormalities in the DNA. It's only been recently that we've gotten access to funding or the, the, the price point of next generation sequencing that includes RNA has come into, into vantage. Uh, so now we're able to use that in many provinces for lung cancer. So those programs are being validated. But if you look at the power of using RNA versus DNA, you know, DNA, you can find a limited amount of things that are frank mutations. But if you're looking for translocations like NTREC, NTREC's a translocation. You're not going to find it on um, the classic uh, next generation sequencing panels that we, we launched a couple of years ago. But those panels are becoming available for things like lung cancer now. So we might be able to start accessing them for other diseases like colorectal cancer, et cetera. Um, the other thing you can get with RNA is amplifications. Uh, so I don't know where we'll go. Um, immunohistochemistry is cheap in the grand scheme of things. But if I could figure out some of these different amplification spaces, you know, maybe we'll evolve to PDL one where we'll under want to understand protein quantification as opposed to. Uh, just uh, looking at it with immunohistochemistry, there may be possibilities where the cost efficiency will get better once you start lumping all these different types of aberrations together. You know, DNA mutations, translocations that you can only pick up when you're using RNA versus even amplifications uh, that you could pick up with RNA. And so, yeah, that's a lot of stuff that we're hopefully going to see down the road. What do you think the next, you know, five years, the five-year outlook in uh, precision medicine for GI malignancies is going to look like? I do think we're going to be to a point where we're doing next generation sequencing for solid tumors, I, I think, across the board. I think we're already to the point where many centers, even if there is only one gene that they're testing, just for simplicity in the lab, you need en enough tests to be able to run things in an efficient fashion. And it actually may end up being cheaper for a lab to get a test result through next generation sequencing as it is for them to do it through single analyte through something like RT-PCR. So that's what we're doing at our center is, is we're by and large across the board using next generation sequencing to do our diagnoses for these different mutations and translocations. The tricky part is, is they're often only resulting the things that are, are funded or considered actionable. So even though they may run a 50-gene panel on my lung cancer patient, I'm going to get 12 results back. Even though we do a 50-gene panel on my colorectal cancer patient, I might only get three genes back. But what that provides an opportunity for is if patient provides consent or times evolve, the data is all there. You just have to go back and look at it. So it gives great opportunities for research. It great, great opportunities even for access to clinical trials because patients can sign consent. We can go back and look at 100 colorectal cancer patients, find the one who has NTRAC and provide them an opportunity that they wouldn't have otherwise had. And that's a lot cheaper than pulling 100 tumor blocks from the archives, sending them off to a central lab to get testing. That's not a great use of anybody's time. Mm -hmm. So what do you think are like the significant barriers that would interfere interfere with the progress happening in NGS? So unfortunately, it's it's cost, cost, cost. So cost is a big one, right? It, 
we've gotten to the point where the price point has come down that I think it's in reach in many spaces across the board. The other big thing that nobody talks about is, is just the frank human resource. So it's great if I can afford the test. It doesn't help me if I don't have the the expertise in molecular genetics to read through all of these files and adjudicate all of these results. The more tests we want, the more time it takes to to provide an overview of of each of those results to make sure that they're meaningful. Uh, So that's going to be important. And then technology, right? Like it feels like every time I buy a machine, it's up and being used at its full capacity within the year of us purchasing it. So keeping ahead of having more modern technology. We just upgraded some of our next generation sequencing technology in Hamilton. And we're super excited. This technology can be used for DNA testing. It can do RNA. We're in the process of trying to validate it not only for tissue diagnostics, but liquid diagnostics, specifically blood. And so, you know, there's opportunities to be to be had, but all of this takes work. Um, and most of it is unrecognized and unfunded work. I, this is my chance to get up on my soapbox and talk about how, you know, there has not been a lot of infrastructure that's been put into augmenting our pathology departments, our molecular genetics departments, to be able to... to accomplish all of the work that we're asking of them. This is this is a huge amount of effort. And I really think that if we want to do the best that we can do as oncologists treating you know, cancer patients, you start off with the knowledge you have at the beginning. And so if I have limited knowledge about someone's diagnosis, I'm going to have limited opportunities to provide them. The more information I have, it's likely the more opportunities I can provide. Um, but it's it's crucial to have enough team members. And that's everything from pathology technicians, cytology technicians, you know, the folks who are working in our molecular genetics labs, uh, running all these tests and then the people who are interpreting them. So let's go back to liquid biopsy because that's always exciting to talk about. Um, what do you think the trajectory is for um, biomarker testing using liquid biopsy in GI malignancies? So liquid biopsies are, I I think, the next wave of where we're moving forward. Patients may not appreciate it. We still need a tissue diagnosis. You know, somebody's got cancer in their liver. I need to know, did it start there? Did it travel there from somewhere else? I need to know what the actual, I need to put a name to the diagnosis. That's done with a biopsy, right? Right now, we haven't figured out how to get past that hurdle of needing tissue to be able to make a diagnosis in solid tumors. That being said, there are ways to extract DNA that is circulating in the bloodstream. Um, That's what liquid biopsy is. It's usually looking at circulating tumor DNA or circulating tumor RNA and molecularly profiling that to provide us the information we need for some of these different therapeutic uh, means. Liquid biopsy, uh, at least in solid tumors, first pioneered in, in lung cancer when we were looking at information about resistance So you put somebody on a a targeted treatment and we've got another targeted treatment, but it only works in a certain subgroup of patients. So we need to recharacterize the current tumor. So going back to the original biopsy doesn't help you. And we tried to use liquid biopsy in that space to help us figure out who the majority of those patients were limiting the number of rebiopsies we did. But we now realize that liquid biopsy can be extremely powerful, especially in those spaces where access to tumor tissue is is minute. Again, that's the world I live in in lung cancer where these, these biopsies are extremely small. But when we look at our GI malignancies, 
You know, you think of cholangiocarcinoma, even sometimes the hepatocellular carcinomas, even pancreatic cancer, oftentimes you get these tiny little fragments of biopsy where you're able to make a diagnosis, but doing much more beyond that is beyond the reach. And these are these are not diagnoses where you've got three months to just, you know, mamby-pamby around to get enough tissue. You need to move things forward. And that's the really cool thing about liquid biopsies is almost everybody in this country has access to somewhere they can go within reasonable driving distance where someone can stick a needle in a vein and draw some blood, right? That part is not hard, right? I would think phlebotomy access is is pretty much available across the country, even in the way far north. And the neat thing about liquid biopsy is, is those samples are are shelf-stable for not quite, but close to a week. So we have done studies where we're shipping those samples to California, shipping those samples to Boston. Um, And again, some of these things then you can easily centralize where you don't necessarily have to have the technology at every single even academic uh, cancer center across the country. You can have it centralized so you can get quick throughput. So we can see turnarounds from needle going into patient to me having a report within two weeks. I can't get a biopsy in two weeks most of the time. I can't, even if a biopsy's already been done and I'm asking for a test, I can't get the next generation sequencing turned around in two weeks most of the time. So the thought that I can get next generation sequencing on a liquid biopsy it is amazing, right? It, it, it will speed likely the, the, the path to diagnosis and it takes out some of the expensive steps, right? The, the person who's doing the procedure, um, all of the people shuffling samples around, you know, to formalin fix, to paraffin embed, to cut the slides, to ship it from anatomic pathologist to molecular geneticist, you know, all of these steps take time. And for some patients, they don't have time. And so liquid biopsies, I think, provides us that ability to get lots of information. It doesn't work for everybody. You have to have enough quantity of circulating DNA for these types of tests to work, but we're getting better and better with tinier and tinier amounts of tissue. So that's why liquid biopsies are so exciting, right? Is is the the quick turnaround time. It's accessible to to people who they, they might not be able to get a tissue diagnosis very easily, but they can get a liquid biopsy. And so before we sign off, uh, are there any anecdotal cases that you'd like to share that speak kind of to the value of biomarker testing and precision medicine in, in GI malignancies? Yeah, you know, if I if I think back to, to my cohort of patients, you know, we've, we've definitely been in, in circumstances where um, like I have a, a patient right now and he has a gastric cancer and he started his journey where, again, he did not have the only biomarker that we tested for, which is HER2. Um, so he went on to chemotherapy and that worked for a while and then stopped working. And then he went on to the next type of chemotherapy and that worked for a while and it stopped working. But none of these things worked for long enough, right? Uh, this person's still in his prime. He's in his 50s. And so when it came down to his his medical oncologist offering him one more chemotherapy, we opted to do uh, molecular testing for, in this case, PDL one um, And we found out that his score was high. And we were fortunate enough to have access to a clinical trial at our center that was looking at immunotherapy in combination. Um, that had a cohort for patients with gastric cancer. Um, 
And we walked into that trial in a, in a very precarious spot. His liver was on the cusp of being overwhelmed by just the sheer quantity of cancer in it. Uh, and I still remember seeing him after his first CT scan and he felt great, but his scans looked a little worse before it looked, at that point, they looked a little bit worse, but he felt great. But I had this score, right? And I knew, I'm like, there's something going on with his immune system. I think we need to give this just a wee bit more time. And lo and behold, six weeks later, his next CT scan, everything has shrunk by half. And we fast forward six weeks later and everything has shrunk by another half again. And so, you know, this is where biomarker testing is important, right? Is had I not had that CPS score, maybe I wouldn't have had enough faith to say, let's push on for another six weeks. Let's just give it a little bit more time. And I'm talking, these tumors were like 11 centimeters, like big <laughs> tumors, so, you know, when you see them getting bigger, you you pause, right? And worry that you're making the wrong decision because if I stepped the course and stayed with the clinical trial, the possibility existed that he wouldn't have been well enough from a liver function perspective to get other chemotherapy. But having that biomarker gave us reassurance that we'd chosen the right path and we stuck it out and it's paid dividend. That's where I think biomarkers are so important is it helps inform what we do and, you know, this guy is just so, so thankful. I got the nicest Christmas card from him thanking me for the 30 years of school, because if I hadn't have done that, he wouldn't have been here. Right. And so I'm just so grateful to have what we have now, because when I started, we had none of this, literally none of it. Uh, I had chemotherapy. I had nothing to target. And to think now about all the different targets we have, um, it creates a massive amount of paperwork for me. Don't get me wrong, but it sure brings me joy when I have somebody who who wins the game because of these different yeah, targets. That's a great story. Yeah. It's a good, it's a good way to end off here in a, a positive note. Uh, well, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. That was really great. And hopefully we can have you on again and talk a little bit more about biomarkers. No, absolutely. It's been my pleasure, Sarah. Thank Thanks so much for inviting me. Hey, thanks.